Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 12, and today we are in verses 9 through 21. I will tell you right now that this is going to come up again next week, okay? Just so, just so you know, um, we will not make it all the way through the end, just as we did not make it through the first eight verses in one week. But I invite you to listen carefully now to God's holy and inspired word. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We have spent uh, the last couple of weeks adjusting to a major shift in Paul's letter to the Romans, moving from a lengthy discourse on the justification that we have in Christ or being made right in God's sight to now being focused on what life is like after we have been made new in Christ. And as we began this chapter, we found the Apostle urging his readers to engage in a different kind of sacrifice from what they once knew, where they would present a sacrificial animal to a priest, to now understand that what God desires is for us to present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice, as one fully surrendered to his guidance, to his will, to his service. And we learn that God has gifted us with spiritual gifts that He intends for us to employ within the body of Christ. Doing so not only for for His glory, but for the mutual edification of the body and the individual members in it. This is to be of primary importance to us. To discover our giftedness in the Spirit and to put that to good use. As we come to the passage before us today, we must not lose sight of verses 1 through 8, for this context is here. It's not gone away. 
And what we are about to study is not possible if it is not pursued with the understanding that this is part and parcel of our having given ourselves sacrificially to God. And that these things are achieved through the power of the Holy Spirit. As I said a couple of weeks ago, the first 11 chapters of the letter rarely employ any imperatives. But now, the imperative statements will come one after the other. And as I said then, I will say again, the unregenerate person can have no hope of satisfying these things, which is why Paul is slow to bring them up. He understands too well that people can confuse salvation by grace with salvation by works. And so he goes to great lengths to make the case for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And works have nothing to do with being made right or justified in God's sight. But he also knows that once we have entered into that gracious relationship with the Father through Christ, that we have been empowered through the indwelling Spirit to live differently than we once did. Instead of walking in the flesh, we now walk in the Spirit. So what follows are the directives that the disciples of Christ will make as their own. These are the characteristics that the Spirit of God will be bringing about within believers as the Spirit continues to transform them more and more into the image of the Son. Now, what is before us is voluminous. And we could take weeks and weeks to explore these verses, but we do not have that kind of time in spite of what some of you have suggested to me. That being said, it will be necessary to take a couple of weeks to cover the remainder of this chapter because every one of these statements is significant, but they are not necessarily self-evident. So I do plan to briefly comment on every one so that we gain a better grasp on the significance of what Paul is doing in the balance of this chapter, but we could easily preach an entire sermon on any one of these commanding statements. So, buckle up, hang on tight. Paul begins, let love be genuine. Now, the word Paul employs here is agape, which is the highest form of love that is expressed in the Greek language. But his admonition is that our love be genuine or without hypocrisy. Paul will bring up love once again in this very next verse, but there he speaks of Philadelphia or brotherly love. He begins here with agape because such a high love needs to be the governing principle for every believer. When Jesus was asked about what is the greatest commandment, He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he said, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the word Jesus used there was also agape. And so I believe that what Paul is doing here is indicating that Christians must be governed first and foremost by a supreme love in all their relationships, in their love for God, as well as in their love for their neighbors. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the point that the agape that Christians had for God and for one another was not easily understood by the culture, which is why Paul took an entire chapter in his first letter to the Corinthians to define the Christian understanding of love in 1 Corinthians 13. But it was also more than a definition. It was the type of love that believers were called upon to display. That should be the governing characteristic of all of our relationships. And then Paul says, Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. When the Holy Spirit begins His sanctifying work in a new believer, one of the things that they discover is that their affections begin to change. Without really trying, the evil they once engaged in begins to lose its hold on them and they are drawn to more holy things. They also discover a growing ability to discern between good and evil that was difficult for them before. The lines of demarcation grow more defined, and the evil that once escaped their perception now comes into sharper focus in the light of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is encouraging believers to allow that process to grow into a genuine hatred for that which is diametrically opposed to God. At the same time, he urges that we hold fast to what is good. That is, as the Holy Spirit increases our affection for the things of God, then be united to or joined to that which is the will of the Lord, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So let us not make excuses or exceptions for those things that are unacceptable in the sight of God, but let us leave those things behind in the old life, even as we embrace those things that are good and a part of our new life in Christ. Now, is this a challenge given the world in which we live? You bet it is. But it's not difficult to recognize When the school district is confused about the evil of drag queens reading to our children in the library or biological boys being allowed in the girls' restroom, we should not be confused. When the state is confused about the evil of abortion, we should not be confused. When the world sees nothing wrong with worshiping at the altar of fame or fortune or power, we should be among the first to recognize the spiritual dangers hidden in those sanctuaries. Now, is Paul urging Christians to become moral activists in the world, to take up arms and overthrow governments and punish those who have followed the ways of the evil one? No. But he's also not urging us to find some deserted compound and live in a commune. Nor is he suggesting that we become lukewarm like the church in Laodicea whom Christ is prepared to spew out of his mouth because they are neither hot nor cold. Jesus declares that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world and that is to say that we should not fade away into the woodwork and be silent in the face of evil. 
we are to speak the truth in love. For this shines a light in the moral darkness and it helps to restrict the moral rot that seeks to overwhelm God's good creation. But we need to realize that our obedience to this will bring about suffering for us. Which underscores, I think, the importance of being in a fellowship of believers who know what they believe and why they believe it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, if you don't know your Scriptures well, I'm not the one who said that. The Apostle Paul wrote that in his letter to the Ephesians. And it is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when he first put pen to paper. And then he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now here is an admonition that speaks directly to the inner workings of the body of Christ. And this may come as a surprise to you. But did you know that people get their feelings hurt? Now, Paul knows all about this. Some of his letters to the churches address these kinds of issues within various congregations. But imagine if the guiding principle within every congregation was a contest where the members sought to be the first in showing honor to one another. In other words, the members would live in a state of deferential preference where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. After you. No, please, after you. No, 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 I couldn't. After after you. Please, after you. No. Such an environment would be the result of a place where brotherly affection truly exists and that would only be possible where the members had a deep sense of the enormous love they themselves had received from God in Christ Jesus. But more than that, it would be a place where the members began to see the others in the fellowship as someone for whom Christ died, thus elevating their value in their eyes. And this is what Jesus knows will materialize where true disciples live in communal fellowship. For He says to His first disciples, By this all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. If there is to be a sure sign to the world that we are the disciples of Christ, it will be evidence within the fellowship of the saints. And then he says, do not be slothful in zeal. Here's an admonition to never grow lazy in regards to the faith or in our commitment to Christ. It's a challenge to never take our salvation for granted, but rather to exercise our faith to maintain a level of readiness for the spiritual challenges that are to come. Consider the warnings that Jesus gave to the twelve to be alert, to watch, to not grow weary while the master of the house is away. And yet, 
the visible church of Christ has many members who are content to believe that once they prayed that sinner's prayer, they're all set for eternity to the degree that they now show more zeal when they find green bananas in the produce section than they do for the one who died in their place. No wonder, then, that the command to be fervent in spirit follows so quickly upon this. For Paul is speaking here of an enthusiasm of our inner being that has the capacity to carry us forward and through even when the circumstances are dark and foreboding. Now let us not forget the sufferings of the Apostle Paul when we read this and consider this command. For if ever there was a man whose circumstances were dark and foreboding at various times in his ministry, it was Paul. It was a year ago, this coming March, that Barna Research released a survey in which they indicated that 42% of pastors surveyed had considered a change in career during the previous year. Now someone remind me, were things difficult in 2021? They were. Does it surprise you that a pastor would consider hanging it up and selling Amway instead of doing this? I suppose the good news is that those pastors had evidently not done it yet, otherwise they would not have been in the survey. But how many believers have considered walking away from the faith because it got too hard? You see, the solution to this is to be fervent in spirit. And that is not to say that we need to look in the mirror and give ourselves a good pep talk but to recognize what Paul is saying here, something more akin to what he wrote to young Timothy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. To be fervent in spirit is to recognize that God has not called the equipped, but He has equipped the called, and He has done so through His indwelling Spirit who comes to us bearing gifts. There is a sustaining power resident within every believer, and it is our duty to keep feeding that fire through the regular means of grace. We are to be devoted, as was the first church, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers. And to ignore those things, to become lazy in regard to those things, is to invite a spiritual lethargy that will not withstand the trouble that is sure to come. And then Paul says, serve the Lord. Oh, that we would daily look for opportunities to satisfy this command. How many opportunities are missed simply because we are not attuned to the movement of the Spirit? 
let us always realize that whatever we may be engaged in, there is always an opportunity to serve the Lord by engaging in an act of kindness, by speaking a word of edification, by confronting evil, by sharing the burden of another, by telling someone of the Savior's love, by answering a plea for help, by volunteering to pray for someone. The opportunity may present itself at work or at home or on the tennis court or the classroom or around the family dinner table. Wherever we are, we represent Christ to a world that is largely deaf and blind to His Lordship and to His saving power. But to capture the full weight of this, we need to recognize the flavor of this verb that Paul uses, for it comes from the root word that is translated as slave. You will remember that in his greeting, he self-identified as a bond slave of Christ. This one who is urging others to serve the Lord is one whose own service to the Lord was without reservation and only limited by his physical abilities, but even those maladies did not hold him back. Never forget that Paul was publicly disciplined on several occasions. He was shipwrecked more than once. He was harassed constantly by religious detractors. He was arrested under the most suspect of charges and spent many days chained to Roman guards. And yet none of that got in the way of him living every day in service to Christ. So before we offer excuses as to why we cannot serve the Lord in a particular way, let us bear in mind that such an excuse may not measure up in the minds of others and it demonstrates a lack of understanding of that opening verse of this chapter. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable service, as the King James Version phrases it. Every admonition that Paul puts before the brethren here depends upon verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. To be a bondservant of Christ is to give up any claim that we have to ourselves and to be focused on the one who shed blood purchased us for his own possession. And then Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now in the Greek, there is a sense of ongoing, continuous action with all these things. And the word order is actually this. In hope, rejoicing. In tribulation, abiding. In prayer, continuing. These are to be characteristically true of us who follow Christ. We live in a world that is without hope, And yet we have been given an eternal hope that constantly provides us with a reason to rejoice. Peter begins his first letter this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, 
and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Every single believer has reason to rejoice when they consider the hope that is ours in Christ. Even in our times of trial and tribulation, the apostles consider those times as short when compared to eternity. Peter says here that it's for a little while. Paul says in Romans 8 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And they put our troubles in eternal perspective. Jesus told His disciples, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So even in tribulation, we abide. We deal with it with all patience. And through it all, we pray. We pray constantly, continuously. We pray without ceasing because we know that our Heavenly Father hears us and responds to the cries of the saints. Now let me say that what Paul is describing for us here in verses 9-13 through are behavioral characteristics of believers who are in company. It isn't that these things are not singularly true. They are. But these imperatives are directed at the whole body. So here, for example, in verse 12, these present active participles are plural. So, to put it in southern lingo, it would be in hope, all y'all rejoicing. In tribulation, all y'all abiding. In prayer, all y'all continuing. And as the body of Christ, these things are to be true of us For it is by means of these things that we will be sustained in our walk with Christ. And finally, for today, Paul says in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. One cannot help but think here of the early days of the church when those who were financially able gave generously to the apostles so they might redistribute that wealth to those in their midst with the greatest needs. And as Paul is writing this letter, he's engaged in a financial campaign among the various churches he has established to contribute to the ongoing needs of the saints in Jerusalem who continue to face great hardship because of their faith. Now, Paul is not asking the Roman believers to contribute to that campaign, but he is encouraging them to be mindful 
of the hardships that Christians undergo when they have fallen into the crosshairs of the culture and to help alleviate the difficulty of fellow believers is not only a great privilege, but it is an expression of that love we are admonished to display within the body of Christ. You will remember the description of the final judgment that Jesus gives to his disciples when the king separates the sheep from the goats. And he says to those on his right, to the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you like this? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And when we contribute to the needs of the saints, to the brothers of Christ, we are to understand that we are ministering to the king of all kings. These are the means that he has ordained by which so many prayers are answered when we respond to one another as God has provided. And then Paul says, seek to show hospitality. Now there's a general sense in which Christians are called upon to exhibit hospitality to one and all, but particularly to those within the body of Christ. And as important as other aspects of our life together are, such as discipleship and worship and biblical study and mission and outreach and so on, there is something about a church, as well as an individual believer, who exhibits a warm and welcoming atmosphere, a persona, that speaks volumes about the personal relationship with Christ that exists therein. And who does not want to be around people who display the kind of warmth and friendliness of our Savior? It was said of Jesus that He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And He was called that by His enemies. And they thought they were insulting Him. Oh, that our enemies would judge us like that that we knew how to show hospitality to one and all. The writer to the Hebrews encourages his readers to practice hospitality even to strangers, for there are some who have entertained angels unawares. The disciples of Christ should be some of the warmest people you would ever want to meet because the Spirit of the Lord dwells within them. May that be true of us whenever and wherever we are. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me as we close today in a brief prayer.